much better. The best conversations happen at happy hour. Welcome to ours. Welcome aboard. This is the PT Pinecast. Here's your host, physical therapist, Jimmy McKay. Ladies and gentlemen, we're broadcasting live from Sacred Heart University in Connecticut. Third time is the charm here in Connecticut. In a recent Twitter poll, Connecticut was uh, was li- was listed as the most difficult state to spell in all 50 states, narrowly beating out Massachusetts and Mississippi. That is a distinction you guys have. In fact, I was told that three quarters of the admission exam here at Sacred Heart is actually properly spelling the word Connecticut. So congratulations to the students and faculty here at Sacred Heart. Are you guys ready for a great Pinecast here live? Yeah. All right, we've got some great guests for you. Let's bring out our first guest, a physical therapist and clinic director in nearby New Hampshire. Her goal is to push the outpatient private practice model outside of the traditional model, not only to better serve the community, but also a sustainable balance for clinicians in the profession. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for Kate Leiser. I feel like you should bust through that. Yeah, if I busted through that like a football game, it would be so much better. Like the Kool-Aid, man. So much better. All right, Kate, you work where? So I am the clinic director at Chafredi and Associates, which Jimmy didn't really want to say, which is why he just asked that question. Yeah. Okay. That's an it's interviewer hard. trick. It's very, yeah. It's or how one. would you pronounce that word? Chafredi. <laughs> is, is code for, I don't know how to say that, so I'm going to make you say that. Yeah. All right, so Kate, we're going to start off. You are first get. You're going to set the tone for the evening, and you've got um, uh, a soapbox or or an idea that is uh, is prevalent in our profession, and it's important for the students because they're about to be in the profession. The idea is that the traditional outpatient orthopedic model is burning out. And as soon as I say those two words together, I see the the eyeballs wide. I see the whites of everyone's eyes. Burnout. It's something I don't know if people were thinking about before they entered a profession 10 to 15 years ago, but they're thinking about it uh, a lot right now. It's a topic of discussion. So you think burnout is important. Let's start with why, but then I'm going to come back with, well, what do you think we should do about it? So first, why, why is it burning us out? Or why should these students have this on their radar? I mean, it's important. How much are you guys spending time, energy, effort, finances to pursue your, hopefully your dream career as a physical therapist, a lot, right? You're putting a lot into this. And PTs are going out and they're getting a couple years into the profession. They're not even getting that far into their career. And they're feeling like, man, what did I sign myself up for? Like, what am I doing here? Why is it happening now? Why is it happening now? Maybe it didn't happen 10 years ago, or are we just talking about it more? I think we talk about it more. We talk about it a lot more. I think we talk it, about it a lot, right? We talk about it at professional conferences. We see it on social media. Um, you probably talk about it with your CIs and some other clinicians. Um, and I think in some ways the pandemic has made it more apparent, right? We're all thinking about like, what am I doing when I'm working? What am I doing when I'm not working? And how do I feel about that? And do I feel like I'm really pursuing that passion? So let's, um, let's list the players in the game. Who, who's involved? You have the clinician, right? We'll yep. call it the clinician is the person representing the profession. You have the patient, but there are other people, right? You have to introduce characters into your, into your film and see how they interact. Who, who else is part of this equation? All right, so I'm an outpatient 
PT, so I work in an outpatient private practice, PT-owned practice. So we're dealing with insurance companies, right? Dun, dun, dun. Sorry. We're dealing with family members, right? So especially if you're dealing with children or maybe elders, you're also dealing with their family members who may be managing their care right, which is tough. We're dealing with other medical providers who are who are cranking. I mean, where we live, primary care is very short-staffed. They have very little time with these folks to, to listen to them and, and have a relationship with them and steer them through the medical model. So there are a lot of players. And, and you know, the insurance thing is a huge stress, stressor for PTs and, and patients alike. So so that's kind of a common stressor for sure. So if you're a student, you've been out in clinic, or if you've just followed conversations like that, you, you, you pretty much have understood the, the players in the game and how they interact with each other. Um, now let's talk about how. Where does the burnout come from now? And then we're going to get to what do, we, what do you think we should do about it in a perfect yeah. little world. Honestly, I don't think the burnout necessarily comes from working really hard. Um, has everybody been in a position where they've worked really hard? Maybe it's a sport, maybe it's school, and you don't necessarily feel burnt out. Yeah. Um, I felt that way in the workplace, right? Like, I worked with the faculty here. Like, how awesome is the faculty at Sacred Heart in the PT program? <laughs> the best, right? These guys work so hard, but there's a camaraderie and this kind of family, worms in the back, you know, and there's this level of support that they're giving each other on a day-to-day -day basis, and that's part of what keeps them going, and the students keep them going. Now, as PTs, typically, it's the patients that keep us going, right? It's like, I want to help people. I want to I impact people's lives in a positive way. So part of it is surrounding yourself with the right people so you can continue to work hard and work for those patients, but feel supported and feel like you have someone that's kind of going to bat for you and somebody that's working beside you and supporting you. And I think that's a big part of it. So that's that's on the good end. So then, yeah. so the burnout comes from where? Where where are we? Where is the, the these friction points coming in? I think you know it's really easy depending on, especially like you live in close proximity to certain place to like a clinic or something, and you go work there because it's easy. Or maybe you come out as a new grad, and you go into kind of like a smaller clinic or maybe somewhere where you don't feel as supported, where you don't have that camaraderie that you're used to from PT school and all of that support that helped get you through. Or maybe there's, you know, it's so common. I talk to people and they say, you know, I went into my first job and we talked about all this mentorship and, and how they were going to support me through that first year or two years. And then it doesn't happen because the schedule gets busy. And like the first things that cut, that are cut, are those things that are non-productive time when it comes to the bottom line. Because it is still a business. You have to keep the lights on. The costs are going up. So if something's going to be cut, it's usually those sort of like non-productive times um, that most people will see talk about. Busy schedules, shrinking reimbursement. These are more friction points in terms of you having to work harder to remain in the same place, maybe. So now we understand how the villain and what the villain is doing to us. You've got some ideas on how we change that or how we might change that. In a utopia or in ways that you're doing, how do you improve and how do you reduce that burnout so people in the profession right now or people about to enter it um, have things to look forward to? I mean, I think for sure part of it is building time into the schedule where people can work together and collaborate. That's what we're used to doing as PTs, right? What do you do in tutorial? 
right? You collaborate. You teach each other all the material before you go into large group discussion and you're like, and then you ask your questions hopefully, right? If it's that perfect problem-based model. I've been there, I know, first semester is so hard. Like how hard is first semester, right? So then you go into the clinic setting, you're used to all this collaboration. If you don't get it, that's where it's really a struggle. So, so for example, in our clinic and a lot of other clinics, people are starting to build in more of that really specific formal mentorship time and you can't cut it. You gotta show that you appreciate your clinicians and you guys, especially as new grads going out there soon, you need that time. You need that time and it's not necessarily always patient issues. It's really hard to go into the clinic as a physical therapist and deal with everybody's problems all day all day and people have really hard things happening to them on a day-to-day -day basis hard things that are that they're going through in their lives and you have to take that in and you've got to help them in a lot of ways and and listening to them and showing them that you care is really exhausting and you need support and sometimes that's part of the mentorship it's just how do you manage that okay Let's ask this question, right? Yep. So I think mentor, take it from a guy who works in, a, in, a, in an industry about advertising and buzzwords, right? I feel like mentorship has sort of jumped the shark. Google it, it's a reference. He sort of jumped the shark, right? And now it's everywhere. Everybody provides mentorship. Some has to be better than the other. Some might get cut as soon as things get shaky. Yep. What questions can you ask? What things can you look for? What red flags can you spot to make sure that that's a good environment? I think you have to ask, what is the structure? Do I get to meet with a specific mentor once a week, once a month, a couple times a month? You want to look for that versus like, oh, yeah, we all chat on the fly. I mean, you chat on the fly, you chat at lunch. That's awesome. That's great. You want that camaraderie. But especially as a newer clinician, you need more than that. You want regularly scheduled time. And I, I always encourage people to ask for, like, how long does that last for? Is that for a couple of months? Is that just after I make it through my 30-day review and you, you and I both decide that I get to stay here for, you know, who knows how long? You know, so really getting an idea of what that looks like before you sign on with somebody um, I think is really important. I think how you said it too is, is sign on. And I've, I've given this talk to, uh, to, to students before is an interview, a job interview is not yours to win. I understand you've been taught that way, right? It's been shown that way. It's not yours to win, though. A job interview really should be, you probably should be asking more questions than the, than, the, than the clinic or the business trying to hire you. And these questions should be geared toward what do you want to make sure you are getting out of that? What is there? Because if you don't ask then and you sign on, as you mentioned, it's, it's too late. Yeah, and I think one of the things I would encourage all of you um, is to really look for a culture that fits with you and your values. Because we're all gonna be doing the PT thing, right? Whether you're outpatient, inpatient, you're in a sniff. We're all doing the PT thing. We're all these great practitioners. We come from an awesome physical therapy program, right? So you guys are all gonna come out as great practitioners. You wanna work in an environment where you enjoy the culture that it's, that's around you because that's part of what keeps you working really hard, but in those times when you're working really hard and you're tired and you're like, oh man, this is so hard, you still love the people you work with and you go home appreciating that, wow, this is hard, but man, I'm in the right spot. Like I can work hard and I cannot be burnt out because I'm surrounded by great people who care about me. All right, give me good examples. How'd you do it? I'll make you give you like a specific example. How did you spot good culture 
to know where you were going was going to match everything that you just said? Like, give me a real example, right? Find good people and ask if they have mentorship. That's general. Be specific. And if you have any, like, disaster stories from yourself or friends, we always like good examples. So I was from, I came from the first uh, DPT class, the inaugural class back in 07. And we started the tradition of brewing beer at the Cameron household. Do you guys still do that? I don't think, Dr. I, don't think Cameron. I, was, I don't think I was aware. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've, I know none of yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. So, right? So right? You bre- who, who, a class makes a batch of beer? How does the, this work? The class makes a batch of beer. Yeah. And then it's handed out around graduation time, but not at graduation because you can't bring alcohol to the graduation ceremony, right? Supposedly, right? yeah. And not in this room unless, you know, other than a couple of people. So, <laughs> so we... We started this tradition with David, and then I went into the orthopedic residency program, and I would go and have semester coordination meetings at Dave's house, right. and we would brew more beer. So, so can... on my first interview going out of residency, we somehow started talking about brewing beer. And you know what? I was in New Hampshire. I was right over the border from Vermont. We were you know, enjoying some long trail, uh, courtesy of Sacred Heart today. So you know, it was just kind of like, all right, these guys are cool. Yep, they can sit and have a beer and have a discussion because that is where a lot of great ideas and concepts come from. It's just these general discussions, right? uh, Conversations happen at happy hour. So if any of you took chemistry, and I know all of you do, alcohol is a solution. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So you ask, it sounds like you, you, you tried to immerse yourself, you tried to get as close as you could and find out what those people were about. Yep. Now, before I let you go, if someone goes somewhere, right, there was, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, you had to stay in your first job for a year. If you get somewhere and three or six months in, this is not going well, and I'll preface it by saying, I don't think it's going to get any better because I've tried. You've tried some of those tactics, right? You've asked those questions. What do you think someone should do? It's time to have a discussion with your supervisor. So before you just bail, because you shouldn't just bail, right? You need to review those expectations that you discussed at that initial interview and and have a conversation, an adult conversation about that. We're all professionals, right? But if you are in a situation where you feel like it's time for me to leave, your supervisor should have already recognized it in you that maybe this wasn't working out. And if they haven't, they're not paying attention. That's a sign. I thought your answer Get was going to be ask them if they want to brew beer, and if they say no, you know you should leave. But I like how you're, well, you're, I like you know, your answer, yeah, too. Yeah, I'm gonna, you'd yeah. be a little bit more you know, politically correct about that, not too focused on the beer part. All right, so <laughs> we didn't get too doom and gloom or as doom and gloom as I thought we would about the future of the profession and, and where this, this thing, uh, burnout, might go. But final question for you, what, what is your prediction? What is your look forward and how, how this might go? Are we going to keep sliding? Is burnout going to stay where it is? Are we going to get better or worse? What do you think? I'm hoping that more of this generation of PTs are going to look for it's not work-life balance, right? Because there's there's not really there's a life. total balance. That doesn't really happen because life happens, right? So I think some of us can appreciate that maybe when you have a little bit more experience. However, you need to look for an environment where you feel really supported. And I think if people go out and they look for that from the get-go, not the highest salary, not the, oh, I want to travel, so I'm just going to take all these travel gigs and, and move all over the country, but really seek out that place that you identify with as your core values that may have been a reason that you came to Sacred Heart. 
maybe as an undergrad or when you came to the PT program, for example, somebody that aligns with you and your values, and you go into the clinic and you're like, yeah, this is cool. I can see myself here. And the people interviewing you, part of what they should be looking for is does this person fit with our values? Do they align with us? Are they a part of the group? Because if you are within a group and you're like, man, these people are awesome. Like when I go to work, I feel like I'm surrounded by these tremendous people and everybody belongs there. You know, sometimes you're in a group and there's one person that sticks out and you're like, Oof. there's that one person. It's usually me, but okay, keep going. Yeah, sometimes known as a Karen, depending on, you know, what social media you follow. No offense to anyone in the audience. No offense to anyone named na Karen. actually named Karen. Yeah, I exactly. You know, and I go to the office every day and I'm like, wow. These guys are awesome. I hope I'm not that person, right? Like, I hope that's not me and nobody's telling me. But if you feel like you're surrounded by these great people and you go to work and you're like, yeah, this is cool. I can do this every day. You're in the right place. But if you get to the parking lot and you're sitting outside in your car and you can't turn off your podcast or you're like delaying by checking your email before you even go into the office. I worked at a place like that. Yeah, that's yeah. probably it not sucks. the right place. No, you don't, you know, if you're stalling to get, get into the door, just kind of rethink like, why is it that I'm doing that? And, and make moves. It's important that you find the right fit because that's what's going to keep you in the profession and that's what's going to keep you serving your patients for the long term. And that has a really important trickle-down effect. All right, Kate, you ready for your parting shot? This is the parting shot. All right, your parting shot, your last chance for a mic drop moment, but don't, because I own that one. Your mic drop moment, your soapbox statement, what would you want to leave the students and the audience with tonight? Which, which, what's the, what's the, the sentiment you want to you part with? Um, I think really the most important thing, as you guys coming out now, there's so much information out there for you to absorb and take in. And I would really encourage you to go out with an open mind, think critically about what you're absorbing, but not think cynically. And if you can appreciate that, it's really easy to kind of get railroaded into, this is my thought process, this is my camp that I'm in. And you can very easily just find information that supports that idea or that ideal. And if you go down that path, you're gonna get in a situation where you may miss that like little clinical pearl, that little nugget of information that could turn around the trajectory of somebody's plan of care. And that change in trajectory could mean the world to that patient. So keep an open mind, be critical, don't be cynical. Keep moving. I like, I feel, I, I like parting shots that could be on a t-shirt. So critical, not cynical, I feel fits very well. Let's hear it for Kate, everybody. Love the PT Pinecast? Yes. Yes. Support the show by telling a friend or by leaving a review on iTunes or Google Play. All right, ladies and gentlemen, keep the energy going for our next guest making his way to the stage right now. Yeah, grab a seat right there. Let's put your hands together for Sacred Heart Residency graduate, John DeNoyles. John, this is our third time at Sacred Heart. I think it's, I don't know, maybe your third or fourth time uh, on the podcast, though. You were like you were like episode eight. We've done more than 1,000 episodes. I don't get out much. Or actually, I do get out much. I get out too much. Uh, but you were like episode eight. Yeah, and then I think I got to interview you. You did interview me. What, your 200th episode? 200th episode. How many episodes do you have now? I stopped counting. <laughs> I don't know. A lot. A lot more than I should. Um, do you remember what episode eight was about? You didn't think I start with questions. Te uh, test, treat, 
Retest. Yes, yeah. everybody clapped. That was correct. <laughs> um, I had started the podcast. It was episode eight. I, I was a second-year student, and you were just done with your residency, I think. You completed your Sacred Heart residency in 17? No. Uh, I made 14. That 14. All right. Yeah, so you so had, I'd been in the clinic for you'd a few years. You've been in the clinic. And that w- when I said, I'm, listen, I'm starting a podcast. I have no idea how this is going to go. There's alcohol involved, and it's a solution. Um, and you said, I, ha- I have something. And you were reluctant because you're, you're like, I don't know. I don't have anything to, uh, to really impart. And then all of a sudden, you sort of locked on test, treat, retest. Why was that so important? I wanted to throw it back to that because that was something you said, this is super important. I use this every day, and I think more people should. Yeah, I think that was a big part of our residency. I mean, you went when, with that, Kate. Um, and I think it was my way of getting out and seeing someone in front of me and having no idea what the heck I was going to do with this person, right? So, like, okay, show me something painful. Show me something meaningful to you that you can't do right now. And then I'd watch him do it, and then ideas kind of get in your head, right? So you see something, and then you say, okay... I'm going to go with that, we're going to work on something, and then we'll test it again. And that's meaningful for them. And when they see that's meaningful, uh, you got them, right? You still doing that today? Yeah, for the most part, yep. So you've changed a little bit, student, then you go into a residency. uh, You go out to this real world everybody keeps telling me about that one day I'll get to. (laughs) And uh, and now what do you get to do? Now now sort of describe what the world is like uh, through your lens. Yeah, so I'm still very much a clinician, but I opened my own place. Uh, about two years ago, um, and now we are starting to grow a little bit. Um, but Do you have mentorship available, and is it structured? I, uh, what's that like? It's not structured yet, but it will be, right? Yeah, but I, I went through such a great program that I already know what I want to do, right? I haven't written it down on paper or anything like that, but uh, I know what people, when I went into that situation, I wanted, you know, you go from a very general, you know, your, your, uh, your grad school is very general. You have to make sure you can graduate and that you're safe. You're not hurting people, right? But you learn a whole bunch of things. So when I go out there, I wanted, I wanted to get a little more s- specific, right? So that's where I ended up with the residency. Um, so in terms of a mentorship, I know what people they want. They want to learn more. That's why you go into it. You're not going in it for I don't know, more letters, get the OCS or, or, or SES, whatever it might be. It's because you want to take it a step further so you can serve other people. And so that thinking comes a little more clearly to you. Um, you it's not going to go on a brochure, but how would you describe the residency process going through it? Not, not the program, not the faculty, but, hey, I, I decided this is the path I wanted to take. I went through it. How, how was it? Yeah, I had no intention to do it in a residency. And this was, uh, you know, this was eight years ago, nine years ago that I decided to go into it. But two guys that I went to school with, they were very much into trying to get into one. I said, so why? And they kind of explained it. They wanted more. They wanted to work with professional sports teams, and and now they do, right? So I said, so what do you need to do? And they they said, you know, it looks good to have a research project and do all this other stuff. And I was like, well, I'm doing all of this. So I asked my wife, because I was married, you know, and uh, I said, I'm looking into doing this. It would be one year. We may have to move. She said, you're nuts, but uh, if you keep it on the East Coast, I'm in. How many children did you have at the time? Two. Two, okay. So 
that seemed that's probably super easy, right? I mean, <laughs> well, well, one came in right during that decision, Got so yeah. residency and, and, baby, and we a, call and that. A very active toddler, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I was not your your typical student or resident. But so how was that experience? I mean, a year, pretty immersive, living in the real world with you know huggies and formula and all that. Yeah, le- uh, immersive. Yeah, it was it was a lot. I mean, to summarize, at the end of the day. I would get home, it'd be 10, 11 o'clock, and I still got stuff to do. So I remember sitting one night, I've got a cup of coffee, and then I woke up, right? So I put a lot into it, but I got a lot out of it because I did that. So if you are looking into something like this, expect a hard year, but it's, it's a blip on the map. Like, you're going to put into it what you're going to get out of it. Um, post-residency, you you go and work for someone else. You go and become a clinician. That person was pretty specific in, I'm looking for this type of person. They, were, they, they sort of knew their ideal candidate, and you worked there for a while, and you were happy. And then somewhere along your trajectory, you said, I want to do something different, and that was open your own clinic. Uh, how'd you make that decision? How does someone who maybe think, you maybe even they're a mile away from that fork in the road, how did they make that decision? Do you talk more people into it or out of it? Um, yeah, so, so sometimes I need a little push. So I actually got a call one day from someone who said, when are we opening your own clinic? I said, good question. I've never even thought about that, right? Uh, and then one thing led to another, and I thought this is a really good chance to get out there. It's scary, but it's very exciting. Sorry, what was the second part of the question? I don't remember, but let's just have a new question. <laughs> how would, how, what is someone? Uh, what is something someone should ask themselves if they should or should not make that decision? You just said for it's, a residency. It's to, for sorry, this is this is for opening a clinic. I, I want to stick with that because I think that's important. Because after the residency should be something. It doesn't have to be opening your own clinic, but that's something you said is a little bit scary, is a little bit of a risk for you. How did you make that decision? You had a family. Those two kids were growing up and they're depending on you. How did you make that decision to open a clinic? Some of it was geographical, but. I got to, you know, open a place right near where I lived versus a commute. But a lot of it was I wanted to avoid that burnout a little bit, right? And not that I was burned out for any particular reason where I was other than the the standard typical healthcare life kind of burnout. But I wanted to be able to dictate how I wanted to do things, right? So I wanted to work hard. I knew it was going to be nuts, uh, a lot of stress. But to me, it was controllable stress, right? I, I got to dictate what I was doing when I was working, and I knew it would be a lot, and it still is. I'm, still, I'm only two years in, right? So I think that's when I thought, uh, when things are outside our control, we kind of freak out. And this, I was putting a little, little uh, more in control, and I had such great people around me. And in fact, you helped me quite a bit. So all these people are saying, you have to do this. No one said, what are you thinking? You can't do this. So... I put good people around me who forced me to think, you know, get outside the box, be, get outside my comfort zone, and just make the jump. Did you get outside your comfort zone, or did you take your comfort zone into a different place? And what I, I took mean, my comfort zone in a different place, because I was, about by that time, I'm, you know, a confident clinician. Um, when I don't know something, I'm okay with it, and I go and look it up, and I figure it out, right? But uh, I knew I could do that but it was running something and then growing something. And, you know, I'm still in the process. So you were comfortable. I want to be clear here because this was sort of like, this is sort of what I did, right? So you were comfortable in clinic at this point, 
you were several years into your career, you had done a residency, it prepared you for your career, and now you're saying, I want to do this in a different way. I want to treat in a different way. I want to be the business owner. So you took your comfort zone and went to a different place. I did the same thing. People were like, you're so bold. I can't believe you stepped outside your comfort zone. You're interviewing people in physical therapy. I'm like, I'm super comfortable doing this. This, is, this was great. I was interviewing people who were way smarter than me. I didn't have to buy their book or take their courses. I just like got all the information. I was like, cool, have a great day. But it was, it was, it was great because the audience got to use it as a cheat code. So I agree with stepping outside of your comfort zone. I also like the paradigm of use your comfort zone like one of those giant, you ever do like those bubble soccer or the hamster balls? Like use your comfort zone like that and then go wherever you want with that thing. I feel like you did that because business was not something that, as you mentioned, you were thinking about doing until a lot of people were pushing you, but you had that comfort in, oh, we're opening a business. What type? A clinic. Oh, I'm comfortable there. Right. Yep. I'm trying to picture myself in a hamster ball. You lost me with that. Sorry. <laughs> uh, you're two years in. If uh, you could see where you are now two years ago before you started, where are you? Is this better, worse, and different? Yeah, knock on wood, I think I've actually exceeded my expectations, but I'm very realistic, and so we're doing better than I thought we would, but I also didn't think, oh, this is going to be so bad, I'm right. going to you know, have to sell the house and do all this. Right? A- and you opened it in what year? 2020. Yeah. So that was a I don't even like saying that yeah. year anymore. But, you, but hey, man, I mean, right? Like Ships do well in the harbor, but that's not what ships are for. Um, so I like when threads appear, uh, and we didn't plan this, but... You're working really hard. You're doing a lot of things you're not necessarily comfortable with in terms of business stuff. Are you, do you experience burnout how you are? Because you are a sole practitioner. Do you experience burnout? doing? Because you do all the things. I definitely, yeah, I do. But it's different. And like I said, with control. So now I realize when I'm burned out, like my burnout is I love being a PT. I love the ownership of it. I love growing it like I am now. But even when you do something you love, and you do a lot of it, yeah. and you don't take care of yourself, and you don't just take a vacation. Yes. Like, if I just get out for a few days, take a three-day trip or 40 trip or a week off. Come to Sacred Heart on a Friday. And I am the smartest, best guy in the room, and I, and, I, and I love treating. So I think we get in this whole burnout thing, and it's our own fault, right? Everyone's burned out. I mean, the whole healthcare profession, but other industries. All your patients who come in, they're burned out. So you're, the, you're their relief. Right. So, yes, you take on that burden. But now it's more I just expect it. It doesn't you know, I heard such a horrible story from a woman yesterday. What was it? She uh, she was in I had never met her before. She started, I think, last week. She had a revision because she had a knee replacement that was infected. Right. So I'm talking to her yesterday and she said, yeah, we moved up here from Kansas um, because they're for a cancer center for my husband, uh, and he died 10 years, uh, 10 days later, three of her siblings died, right? And she just, there's something else. I think her dog died too. It was, it was just like all in one year and she was positive about it. Right. And I just thought, you know, I'm not going to cry. I'm, I'm past that point. Right. But she, she just, this attitude, this, she's just going to keep moving forward, but this was not her expectation. Right. So here she is telling this strange guy the story because he asked, right? What, why'd you come from Kansas? 
you knew to ask that question, right? Because we start and end with humans, right? So maybe maybe part of the, the, the question I had asked Kate, which is how do you fight this burnout, is like focus on the things that you can control. Focus on the reason that you're there. Right. What advice would you give to students? Because you, I mean, you, you know, did a residency. Is there any like bit of advice? Well, first of all, find out who the guy is who brews beer at his house. I think we should be on the brochure. <laughs> See that guy in the back. Uh, any student advice? Student advice? What do you guys want to hear? What kind of advice? Yeah, what, do you, do you what are the things that come up, or what are the things you want to know most of? Or you could just wait till John's had two beers at the post party. <laughs> You'll hear way better things later. Yeah. Uh, what did you need to hear? We often hear people say, be the adult that you needed as a child, right? That's a good way to say, but how, what advice did you need to hear the most? I, I feel like a couple classmates that I went to school with are jumping in my head right now, where they were super stressed. What do, how are we going to pass this exam? What are we, you know, where are we going to work? It's like, just relax. Like, just relax. You know, it's Friday night. I hope you're not going home and studying, right? Don't tonight, do it. Right? So find, find times, find times to work hard and find times to have fun. But some people work better when they stress out. Um, I realized, you know, when I started stressing a little less second and then third year, actually my grades went up. Right, and I got more focused. My studying was more; uh, it was quicker. It was more to the point, versus trying to just get everything and learn everything. It's just get an understanding and just relax. Just relax. Are you ready for your part? Is that your parting shot? Just relax, or do you want a different parting shot? Yeah, that's great. I like just relax. <laughs> Here for John Denoyles. This is the PT Pinecast. All right, making his way to the stage right now. No stranger to the show. Sponsoring the show for like the last four years. I want to say thank you for that. Let's welcome Johnny Owens. Welcome, sir. Been on the show numerous times. Thanks for, like, you literally just got off an airplane and then made your way. And you said, my hotel's 12 miles down the road. It took me 97 minutes to get here. Two things I've learned about Connecticut. It's cold. I'm from Texas, and the traffic sucks. Well, it's Friday, man. Everybody's <laughs> bailing out of New York. Um, Johnny, we had an episode in the first year of my podcast, too, because I was a student who had somehow gained the, a license to just ask anybody questions because I owned a microphone, and I heard about this thing called BFR. And I was like, I don't know, is that three more letters I need after my name? I don't know what this thing is. Um, and then the more we started looking into it, it was something really, really new and innovative. And then I interviewed you, and the first thing you said was, this isn't new. And then you said it's been around for a long, long time. So you work in this space and you educate clinicians on the use of this uh, intervention, the use of this idea. When people first find out about it, a lot of times it's students because they're being exposed for the first time. What are the things you want to set them up with? Or how do you set good expectations about what it is, where it came from, from and what does it do? Well, you're right on the, I feel like I should use this voice. I got the worst voice when I was. Mom well, said I had the well, face for radio. My, my, my mom said I had the face for radio, so I should probably get a really good <laughs> microphone. Um, so yeah, it's not new. That's what's interesting. So when we first started looking at it, I was, I was with the DOD and I'm still there as a clinical researcher. And so we were looking for things to help with combat casualties, like big blast trauma type things. People who couldn't handle load, which is pretty much everyone in physical therapy. And so what could we do to somehow get a stimulus for muscle when the paradox is you should put load on that muscle? 
So we looked at everything from steroids. That was the, the, the quickest study that was ever shot down by the DOD was could we give all these people steroids, get in the hospital, and it was a big hell. Not though. liver, not just eating liver, yeah. not the liver no, king? No, that not wasn't the liver the man, thing. not the liver man. So, um, so he knows we, what I'm talking about. We see, yeah. <laughs> Twitter, it'll, it'll, Instagram, it'll, it's <laughs> terrible. Um, so anyways, we started looking into things, and we had, we had this think tank called Streck, and that was just a bunch of us scientists, orthopedic surgeons, myself, and looking at different things, and we started seeing this stuff about using tourniquets to, to get this kind of anabolic stimulus where you can do low loads and, and get this sort of signal to the muscle. And so we're like, well, this sounds kind of weird. And then we kept looking at it and going deeper and deeper and deeper into it. And it was like decades old worth of literature. I mean, it's, you know, the true like blood flow restriction using a tourniquet and doing low load exercises, probably like the 80s or 90s when they were really looking at it in some physiological labs. But, you know, at 1937 in JAMA, they're wow. using applications of this. And it's, they weren't doing it with exercise. They were using more of tourniquets on and off and on and off to get this reactive hyperemia to bring blood to the limb for, for wound healing, for peripheral arterial disease and things like that. So what are the different ways we can get a larger response with a smaller stimulus? And the idea was to restrict blood and yeah. introduce a lower stimulus. Yeah, yeah again, the paradox is our, our guidelines, ACSM guidelines, physiological guidelines for muscles. If you want to increase muscle quantity or quality, strength and hypertrophy, you should put on load 65 to 80% of a one rep max. And you should do that for, you know, three to four to five months to get this sort of stimulus. And then someone gets hurt and they come to see us for three to four months and we're doing these little one pound things, which flies in the face of what the, the physiological kind of smart muscle people tell us. And so that was always a, a big rub for me. And there's no ACSM guideline that says, well, if you can't lift heavy, just lift a lightweight. There's not. So it's not in there at all. Yeah, it's glorified reps. And, and so that is kind of frustrating because you're just watching the muscle. It's called anabolic resistance. Within the first five days, it's already going south. If you put someone in immobilize them, by day two, they've already lost um, cross-sectional area of their, of their quad muscle if you look at it on the MRI. So it happens quick, and they lose it, and they lose it, and they lose it fast. One week of bed rest, you're going to lose about almost four pounds of muscle. It's going to take about 16 weeks to put that back on. Wait, wait, wait. Say that again. One week of bed rest, week of bed four rest. pounds yeah. of muscle. Yeah, the folks, the Scandinavians, if you want to see, like, the smart physiological kind of people, it's all the dang Scandinavians. Um, and, and a guy... Um, uh, Luke Van Loon over there, they, he's done a lot of these bed rest studies. And, and one week of bed rest, lost almost four pounds of muscle. It's going to take 16 weeks to put on. And then he did another model where they just reduced walking by 90%, which is kind of what a typical post-surgical person would be. They saw a lot of these same things go down. Your muscle protein synthesis went down by about 30%, which means you're probably going to lose more than the size of your heart. In your, in your lower leg, um, in your quad. And these people, even young, healthy individuals, they got insulin um, resistance. So they wow. almost got pre-diabetic from this. And so everyone that comes in, especially these elderly patients, we're really up against it. So we need something to mimic these ACSM guideline type loads. And so it's, you know, we don't have to get complicated, but there is anaerobic metabolism and there's aerobic metabolism. Your body always, always, always would rather use the aerobic metabolism because that is the slow twitch fibers. And there's no increase in any muscle content from that. And the body, you know, one of our, one of our scientists in the DOD, we, we had our, our kind of our lead physiologist were across the street from my center. You know, he said, always think about muscle and human physiology, physiology from a caveman's perspective. And so cavemen, 
if they willy-nilly put on muscle, what happens is the more muscle you have, the more myocytes you have, and the more protein synthesis you do, and that drives ATP use, and that drives energy. It's why they say, you know, if you want to increase metabolism, put on muscle. So your body doesn't want to put on muscle, and if you don't use muscle, it'll dump it real quick because it always thinks about number one, and that's the brain. So you're going to lose it real fast, and your body's going to say, you got to really work to get it back. And so that is our rub in physical therapy. People lose it. You look at someone nine months, two years, three years out from an Achilles repair, post-op ACL, and they still have this, this kind of this just in-your-face atrophy, which is really frustrating. So knowing that your body's always going to want to use oxygen and the slow-twitch fibers unless you force the stimulus, which is typically heavy load or power-type movements, just take the oxygen away. And that's in its simplest form, that's it. It's, it's all plumbing. We put a tourniquet on the upper thigh or the upper arm. We reduce the oxygen content. You choke out the Krebs cycle, and you force the body to have to switch to anaerobic metabolism. Even though we're using these kind of dinky rehab weights, we can make it. And you've done it. I mean, it's, it's terrible. It's hard. It feels like yeah. the hardest thing in your life because you're moving to those big, fast-switch power units. It's a cool uh, story. If you haven't seen it, we shared it and did a cool episode about it with uh, Stefania Bell was, was nice enough to do a story on ESPN. You were using this with, uh, with Dwight Howard. And I think that's really- a weirdo. He's a weirdo? Yeah. Say that really, yeah. I like that. He Ex- loves riddles. I hate riddles. You ever like people that starts everything with a riddle? Like, riddle me this. I'm like, Jesus, can we just get to work today? I might actually, yeah. that might that might be the new thing for 2023. Every podcast episode is we begin with a riddle. I'm not sure. Yeah, I hope he's not. Li- does he listen to you? I don't think he's a subscriber okay. just yet. I don't think Good. Dwight Howard. <laughs> um, so, so first of all, I think you ripped through. Uh, explaining like BFR, but you did it pretty well, which is you choke out the oxygen and then you start to, to get the stimulus. Let's talk about application. Like, who are the types of people? Because I remember when we first had our first conversation about this, putting a tourniquet on someone is medical device, right? So you want to be careful about restricting blood and oxygen to different tissues in the body. But you can do it well. And now, I remember the second time I had you on the show, you're like, well, we're actually looking into geriatric and pediatric populations. Yeah. Where 10 years ago, no way you were going near those people with a, with a tourniquet. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's, a, you know, if we kind of stepwise here, this could be a huge, the unicorn that we've been looking for, something that can actually get this stimulus to, to, to do something for muscle. The next thing is, well, if something works, you know, we're, in, in physical therapy, we have the burden of we're dealing with either people that are injured or people that are post-surgical or people that have these comorbidities. So, you know, there's, there's always a risk of working with those people. But then when you do something that actually works, there's usually a risk that happens with that. It's why, you know, if you look at every drug commercial, this thing works and it's like, yeah, but don't take this drug if you're allergic to it and da 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 and you'll never, you'll be empty for the rest of your life and all that sort of stuff. So there's usually a side effect to it. And so blood flow restriction, there can be some potential side effects, but overall there is a, the safety profile looks really, really positive. And that's been from doing it from, you know, service members to orthopedic patients to elderly patients. We just had our first safety profile at, at Connecticut Children's Hospital um, that, you know, 500 BFR episodes, not a single adverse event with kids. So from a safety profile, you know, we, we feel pretty good with that because this is also, you know, FDA watches these sort of things. Um, the next thing is, who are the targets? And the targets, the lowest hanging fruit is the rehab people, you know, because I, I get all the freaking meatheads all the time, you know. Um, we're like, dude, can I just put this on and do da da? And it's like, Hulk I, out. I just like, that's I don't how care. I got this big. I don't yeah, want to brag yeah, or yeah. anything, but really? Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. Um, 
so for us, anyone who cannot handle load is a perfect target. But if you look at the six minute reviews and meta-analysis, the people who had the biggest effect size, this looks like it, it really, it's almost like you're gonna 100% see something happen were people over 55. Huh. That is a huge, huge population for us because if you give some of these people who are pre-diabetic, hypertensive, cardiovascular disease, whatever, muscle, muscle is so valuable. You know, it's, it's so underrated and, and we're, we're learning more and more. I mean, muscle, muscle helps with bone. They, there's a crosstalk and now we had our first um, study come out of Methodist Houston with ACL patients that we preserve bone loss after ACL. If you didn't do BFR, you lost about 13% of bone stock in your knee by the 12th week, which is amazing too. That young, young people will, will get osteopenic basically in their knees and we preserve that bone loss. The next step is like, well, we, we gotta look at this with osteoporosis. We gotta look at this with the failed total joints. A failed total joint is a nightmare. It is a nightmare. I've, I've had two patients that we saw at the DOD who were failed total joints that were above, they, were, they became AKs from that, you know? And it's primarily, a, it's an infection and it becomes a bone stock issue. So those are the type of things we're looking at. We have a diabetes trial going on in Germany. And if you look at it, it's on clinicaltrials.gov. The diabetes trial isn't, can you make diabetics stronger? It is, can you reduce the insulin insensitivity so that we are making these people less dependent on insulin and their glucose le levels are under control? which that's massive, because if you say, I can give a diabetic muscle as well as capillary beds, because the Nobel Prize in 2019 was for showing hypoxia creates this angiogenic effect through this thing called hypoxia-inducible factor 1A, that you can increase capillarization. If we as a profession can say, if you come here and do this, it looks like about four weeks we have this angiogenic effect. We can reduce your insulin load that you'd have to be. You're not as insulin insensitive, that's a whole new game changer for rehab because now we're saying, come to us, diabetic, because we can help with your diabetes. Not that, well, we can help you with function or things like that. We Parkinson's disease trial that, that was done at Baylor, we showed that we increased their vascularity of what kills a lot of Parkinson's patients is their vascular compromise. They're, they're, oxidant, they're oxidatively stressed. They, a lot of them die from cardiovascular disease. They showed in four weeks, they really improved their vascularity as well as increasing strength on hypertrophy. It's like a double win. The University of Colorado this week just got a VA grant granted for a, a new Parkinson's trial. And so again, I think this could be a game changer where we are saying, come to us for a vascular tune-up for four weeks, Parkinson's patient, diabetes patient. We'll help with your vascular system. And oh, by the way, you're gonna get some muscle from this. You know, just keep moving after you're done with this sort of I thing. I feel like you should host a podcast about blood flow restriction. <laughs> do you host a podcast about blood flow restriction? I do, but I don't do it enough. <laughs> So you can hear how like pumped he is. like like he's like going down this cool rabbit hole right like I was watching some I like I like to watch the audience because I already know the guests so I'm like watching the audience I had three beers just three all right well, well let's have more but um, but you teach a course on this you're teaching one uh, this weekend so we were lucky enough to have you in the uh, in the building at the same time but you haven't lost any steam on this in fact every time I talk to you you rip out like you just did this person's doing a study in this study in this study in this study um, it has to be research-led and you're seeing all these things you're involved in research you've come pretty far with this this is this sort of been something you focus on for a while last question for you before we do parting shot like no, what's alright we won't do the parting shot <laughs> I'm gonna make you do one I can't, I, you, I can't do um, where's this gonna where where's really great in five years or 10, like where do you think this is gonna go in the short term? Well, I think it keeps growing and growing and growing, you know, so it, it was 
sort of, and I'm a DOD guy. We didn't invent the DOD. Like I said, it's been around for a long time. DOD, I think, really championed it. Stefania Bell, our friend, like ESPN does nothing but help you with it. But now we've done 60 Minutes, Time Magazine, and things like that. So we're seeing it start to grow. It went from that. Now it's on workers' comp in every professional league. So any pro athlete gets hurt, they're going to get a BFR system sent to them for the rehab. And it's moved now into the major healthcare systems, the UPMCs, the Cleveland Clinics, the Mayo Clinics, and all of that. And you told me, I mean, you said earlier, like, look, defense does a lot of research because getting um, uh, a tactical athlete back on the field faster or back in, back in the field faster is important to them because it's time, effort, money. And then next is professional sports, and you've worked with professional sports, collegiate sports. Um, is, are we about to see that start to trickle down to clinics in your hometown? I mean, Yeah, I, I think we're, we're already there at, at some point. But, I, you know, we're looking for a standardized approach. We want to make sure it's safe and make sure that, you know, we know everything from, like, how much pressure would I use on this patient? Or, you know, it looks like things we're learning now. Like, for vascularity, we might need a little bit more pressure versus what we need for muscle. For the pain response, it seems like a higher pressure works better than a lower. And, and I will say at the end, there is – I don't know if this is the end. Is this the end? I mean, it could be the end for you. You're in charge. <laughs> there is a huge amount – of science-based research behind this right now, which is really kind of cool because if you look at the majority of the BFR studies, they're coming out of these really high-powered physiological labs around the world. The, the Scandinavians, like I talked about, uh, tons of them you know, throughout North America, Brazil. So we have a lot of the people that know, them, know the physiology are doing the bench work for us, and they've laid that foundation. I mean, there's, we have like 1,300 published papers now. Now we have all these clinical trials that are just piling on top of that. That's like this massive one-two punch because, you know, I've got $6 million in DOD funding where, where we're looking at. We're, we're getting grants almost like monthly. So if you have this giant science-based foundation and they're saying this works and this is exactly why it works, we've done the biopsy mechanistic animal trials and then all these clinical studies from children on up that say, and it works in the clinic, that's a undeniable for insurance payers. Medicare. That's our goal in the end is to come to Medicare and say, prove us why we shouldn't get a code. Right. How do you because beat we haven't got a code since aquatic therapy. Right. How do you beat the villain is you prove it yeah. and you prove it over and over yeah. again. All right. I won't make you do a parting shot if we do a shot. If, you if we do a shot yeah. later. Oh, yeah. yeah. All sure. right. We'll do that. All right. So he's off the hook. Johnny Owens, everybody. OwensRecoveryScience.com. Love the PT Pinecast? Yes. Yes. Support the show by telling a friend or by leaving a review on iTunes or Google Play. All right, let's uh, put your hands together for our next guest making her way behind me. Our next guest. Apparently needs no... Apparently, you don't need an introduction here, but I'll give one for the podcast audience. Our next guest is the Geriatric Residency Director and Clinical Physical Therapist at Sacred Heart University, where she has evolved in her role from student to an adjunct-level instructor to a full-time member of the faculty, Suzanne Rodriguez, on the program. Suzanne, you asked me uh, not to mention the fact that you actually learned the accordion, so I will not I the fact mention the fact that you are Thank an accordion you so much. player. I appreciate it. Yes. But how did you get into the squeeze box? I googled it. That's the nickname of the accordion. The squeeze box. How'd that come about? Well, you know, my parents and my grandparents immigrated from Portugal, and in doing so, my grandfather brought his accordion with him, and I played the piano. So my grandfather asked me to learn the accordion, and of course, I had to 
you know, I was his favorite grandchild, so of course yeah. I had to. I had to learn. So just in case you're wondering, the accordion being the way cooler version and portable version of a piano. Yes. Yes. But not many people know that fact. Although That's now there's true. a whole room full of individuals that. Know so that where fact. are your where are your current students right now? Like, what are you oh. teaching right now? They all there. They're they are. Had, yeah, they're everywhere in here. Have you brought the uh, the accordion into? I have not. No. No. On Monday, I don't know. I got to think. The, uh, the, the, the uh, Weird Al Yankovic movie is about to come out. I feel like there's going to be a, a resurgence of accordion popularity very, very shortly. I might have to practice a little bit. It's been quite a few years. And you heard her say that, so keep <laughs> her to that. All right. There's not much time for that, though. So I love when we do live shows because themes emerge. We did not plan this, but you heard Johnny a second ago, and I was watching your eyes going like, yeah, what's up with this? And he, because he mentioned geriatric population, yeah. and you are the director of the geriatric residency. So when you're hearing things like this, you're saying, look, attention for older adults because we shouldn't just have them go through the motions. What was going through your head there? I was really enjoying that conversation because, you know, that is something I'm really passionate about is properly dosing our older adult population. Um, and, you know, I've had the, the great opportunities of learning from some of the great, some of my great mentors in geriatrics, uh, Carol Lewis. Carol Lewis. One of my favorites. Um, I have attended so many of her continuing education courses, and that's something that she's always reiterated is let's properly dose this population. And I've had recently the opportunity to attend um, Modern Management of the Older Adult, their Essential Foundations course. And they really focus so much on proper dosing and use of one rep max, which I've also been using for quite some time. Um, and it's so nice to hear that, you know, there's that support across the board as well. Um, and I think, you know, I, I work in settings where I see older adults, you know, you, you, my coworkers slap a two pound weight on, on the individual and have them do three sets of 10 long arc quads. And it's like, well, what are you, what are you intending to, to strengthen with a two pound weight? You know, when you think about strengthening a muscle, you have to achieve at least a 60% overload to have an improvement in strength. And when we think in terms of a one rep max, 60% is 15 repetitions. And I guarantee if you ask that individual with a two pound ankle weight to perform as many reps as they can, they could probably do 30 to 40 to 50 repetitions. And what are we gaining? So I, I'm a big proponent of utilizing the one rep max and, and really kind of looking at our, yes, thank you. Absolutely. And it's so, hold it closer. Hold it closer. Okay. And it's so easy to do with technology these days because you look at, you know, when I learned about one rep max, we used the Adbarton table and we had to do the calculations ourselves. I have an app on my phone and I, I put the amount of weight that I utilized with the patient and the repetitions that they were able to do and it calculates the one rep max and I decide what percentage of the one rep max I want to utilize with that patient. So technology nowadays is really kind of, a, there's no excuse not to use the one rep max. I like how you said that. All right. So in, in my job in science communication, right? Yeah. Um, sometimes I try to introduce new ideas and sometimes I try to take old ideas or myths or preconceptions and change them. So this is one preconception, right? You see it everywhere. I mean, Johnny just referenced it. You see someone just lifting a two pound weight and expecting a result. First, you have to identify why the myth or misconception exists before you can figure out a way to change it because you're trying to change culture, public culture. Carol Lewis has been uh, pretty vocal about this. Why does the misconception still exist, and how do you think we can and should be changing it? 
No pressure, by the way. Oh, I could go on about this for quite some time, but to try to condense it a little bit, I think there is just a, a gap in knowledge. And, you know, and we look at our older adult population, you look at that 90-year-old sitting in front of you, and you look at them and you say, oh, gosh, I don't think that they can handle, you know, a lot of stress, and, and I'm going to just put a two-pound weight on, and I think that's what they can handle. I think it's just a lot of that ageist bias, which, you know, some of my students here, uh, we talked about that a little bit, um, you know, and just looking at the person, looking at their capabilities, not thinking about what age they are, you know, that obviously that does play a little bit of a role because we do have physiological changes with aging. Um, but you should never look at the age and assume that the person is not capable of performing an activity. You should look at the individual, see what their, their functional capabilities are, and go from there. Um, and like I said, I think there's a lot of, of a window of opportunity in our PT programs to do a little bit more with geriatric education. And we actually offered a geriatric elective here at Sacred Heart over the summer uh, this past this past summer, and it was a really great opportunity for us to really kind of encourage our students to, to look at the person, not look at the age, and, and properly dose those individuals. Um, statistics are stool, are, are stools, are tools. <laughs> I'm gonna edit that out. Statistics are tools that yeah. you can use to illustrate information. Uh, I'll give you a couple of that you share with me. Less than 50% of PT programs offer a formal geriatrics course. That should be Kind of scary. I mean, you mentioned yours is an elective, right? That means not every student is taking it. So we're not are we, we're not arming all of our physical therapists with the information that you've got. Right, and actually, you know, Carol Lewis uh, gave a Macmillan lecture, and that's one thing she really kind of emphasized to the APTA was to really push for that geriatric education. And she surveyed all of the PT schools. I think it was 2016, so the data might have changed a little bit. And 60% of the PT programs across the United States offered a pediatric, formal pediatric course, and less than 40% at that time offered a formal geriatrics course. And you know, with the what we entitled the silver tsunami coming in, those baby boomers are, are hitting the 65 and older uh, age range. You know, we think about the implications of that. You know, one in five individuals will be 65 and older in the year 2030. So no say matter that say that again because that was the next stool that I was going to yeah. use. Was <laughs> in t by 2030, 20 percent, one in five of uh, people in the population will be 65 or older. Yes. And just think about the implications of that. No matter what setting you work in, outside of pediatrics, no matter what setting you work in, you will be working with the older adult population. And you think about it from a socioeconomic standpoint and, and just the burden on the healthcare system. You know, we need to do better to make sure and ensure that this population is receiving the care that they need to physically function well into their, their older age. And we have such a big impact in that realm as physical therapists. Yeah. Talking with geriatric physical therapists on this show, uh, I think when it was, it was put this way, we're medically really great at prolonging life, right? Our medical colleagues are fantastic at prolonging life. And then you see and hear stories about people who will live a long life, but what type of quality is that? Because where did they fall off and they're not able to get some of that quality back? Exactly. And uh, Dustin Jones from Modern Management of the Older Adult really kind of, he, he hones in on, you know, you want to live long and die fast, you know, and... and yeah, and, and, that's right. a t-shirt. I love that, you know, and, and you know, I, I will never forget that because, you know, you think about that. You want to live the best life possible, optimal aging. You want to, you know, do all that you can do up until your, your time to go. And then when that time comes, you want to just go. You don't want to physically fail until that time and, yeah. and, you know, be a burden on your family members and, and you know, even institutionalization. 
you mentioned, you know, physical therapists, maybe outside of pediatrics, uh, working with older adults or coming in contact with older adults. I think it was Dustin Jones, too, who put this in perspective, which was everybody's kind of an older adult in training. Like, you, you want to be an older yeah. adult one day, right? That's sort of the goal. Absolutely. And, you know, no matter what we do to avoid it, it, it comes, you know, and we, we look at that. And um, I think he really does a nice job, too, of, of actually there's in one of his lectures, he includes um, a TED talk by Ashton Applewhite. And in one of her key phrases on that is um, ageism is a bias against our future selves, is prejudice against our future selves. And if you think about that, you know, if, if you have an ageist bias, you're going to be old one day, so you're, you're prejudiced against your future self. And I think that's a really, like, a phenomenal quote that really stuck with me. Yeah, hopefully you're going to be old yeah, one day. Yeah. Um, if you were to give, um, you know, maybe um, uh, an elevator pitch or a soapbox moment, right? Let's say it's, uh, it's elective day here at Sacred Heart, or it's elective day here in, in the profession of physical therapy, and you're standing outside the geriatrics elective, right? And everybody's walking around in the hallways, and they're thinking about what classes they're going to take. And they're like, I don't know, man. I want one with a lot of, like, Where's the exoskeletons and drones, or where's the one with all the gym bros? What would you say as you stood outside in the hallways to get people to pay attention to why your class was worth their time? I think, you know, and everybody has somebody in their life that is uh, at an older age. And I, you know, I really kind of hone in on the fact that, you know, this could be your, your mother, your grandmother, your great-grandmother, you know, there's a loved one that you kind of associate with a, an older, older age. And, you know, thinking about how you can maximize their quality of life as they progress through their, their, their lifespan. And I think we, like I said, as physical therapists, we play such an important role in, in fostering that, that improvement in quality of life and function. So, you know, come and help and, and you know, come and learn and, and, you know, we have a grand old time in, in our geriatric elective. <laughs> Said like a 75-year-old woman. Like, we have a grand old time. We have a grand old time. <laughs> Again, I usually pay attention to the audience, but sometimes I pay attention to the guests. Like, you've not stopped smiling when talking about older adults the entire oh, time. Yeah. And that, I, that actually does come across in the podcast because you can hear it. That's my happy place. All right, so, so last idea or last concept before we get your parting shot would be how do we change this? Um, how do we change this sort of culture where old just kind of happens, and this is just a, a, a slope that you're going to go on? Where do you? Where would you put your 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 effort? Would you would you change someone before they become an older adult? Would you focus on older adults? Where do you? Where would you go? I think in terms of you know physical therapy in general, I think it starts with the students that we have in this room, and you know uh, my co-teacher, co-instructor for the course, Lee Ronald, is here as well, so I'll give her a little bit of a prop here. Um, but it was, really, it was really great to see kind of the change in perception in, in our students as, as we went through the semester over the summer uh, during the elective. And I think if we can try and kind of change that mindset and educate our, our current cohort, you know, in, in looking at decreasing that ageism bias and, and knowing how to properly dose our older adults, I think That'll change perception, and, you know, I see it in myself in the clinic. You know, my coworkers are looking at me, and they're like, wow, that's a lot of weight that you have on there. Well, that's what he can tolerate, my patient can tolerate. And I really see the change in their practice as well. So I think we can be the change in that way. Be the change. Be the Did change. you just root that you, maybe that's, that's your parting that's shot. A, that's a glimpse. Let's just get to your parting shot because I don't want to ruin that. This is the parting shot. All right, parting shot. What would you, uh, your mic drop moment or your soapbox statement, what would you want to leave with everybody? 
So I'm going to start with be the change. And I often say, you know, never stay stagnant as a practicing clinician. I think one of the most important things that I iterate with my my students and my colleagues is surround yourself with people that have the same passions as you do. Get involved with local and national APTA, uh, whether it's in a special interest group or as an officer or just attending meetings, but just surround yourself, take continuing education courses that really kind of light your fire and you leave that course and you want to start that practice on Monday morning. Uh, never stay stagnant. Always, you know, be the change in our profession. I like how you started in with be the change. Just put your hands together for Suzanne Rodriguez. Love the PT Pinecast? Yes. yes. Support the show by telling a friend or by leaving a review on iTunes or Google Play. All right, ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for the final guests of the evening. <laughs> Assistant Professor PT here at Sacred Heart, Director of the Practice for Academy uh, of Neurologic Physical Therapy, Wendy Romney, everybody. <laughs> Round number, approximately how many fish shows have you been to? Um... Uh, 99? 99. Wait, is that like the exact number? (laughs) Probably around there. She's at fish shows. She has no (laughs) idea how many fish shows. (laughs) No idea. She's relived several fish shows multiple times. That's the great thing about fish shows. I bring in the kids now too, so. Are you really? Uh, How far have you you actually traveled on the the fish bandwagon? Uh, Miami is the farthest I've gone. My husband's gone everywhere. Not bad. Everywhere. Um, how's it going in the audience there for this show? I can never tell because I'm up here just kind of yammering, but how's it going so far? I think they're engaged and, and laughing and having yeah, a good their time. Glasses are still sure. empty, but we're going to fix that yeah. very soon, kids. Don't yeah. worry about it. They, they would like their glasses full. They are all, all empty still. So, so you and I share something, but I want to make sure we, um, we, uh, I want to make sure we set the stage first which is a love for knowledge translation. Oh. That's what we share, okay. Wendy. Um, <laughs> you work with the, uh, with the Neuro Academy, or the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, uh, in terms of knowledge translation. How do you describe what knowledge translation is? So it is the process from moving evidence, the scientific evidence, the clinical research trials into practice. So it was really nice to listen to these stories about each, we have mounting evidence that says we should be doing this and this and this, but are the clinicians doing it? Are they taking a hold of what evidence says? And so that is what my research is, and that's what I've been working on in the Academy of Neurophysical Therapy. For the and day. and a lot of work. Been doing, this has been going on for a while, right? Yep. Um, and it, it's funny. We're standing in the state of Connecticut. We're kind of in the middle of Connecticut, right, in terms of you guys are kind of like a square. And this state is sort of like divided down the middle, uh, Yankees and Red Sox fans. It's sort of like this Hatfield and McCoy, this, 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 this dichotomy. And it sort of seems like it's the same in research and clinic, right? The researchers go off and they find out stuff, right? And the clinicians say, tell us stuff. We want to know what the best stuff is. What stuff do you got? And then the researchers give them the stuff. And then sometimes the clinician, clinicians are just like, yeah, we're, we're good. We're just going to use the old stuff. And they keep using the old stuff. And it goes back and forth. Um, why does that happen? Because the researchers aren't in the clinic, right? So they're not asking the clinicians, what do you want to know? And, and the trials aren't pragmatic where they're in the clinic actually seeing, can you do this? Is it, is it, can you apply this? When the study comes out and says, you need to do this four times a week, yet my patient only comes once a week, how do I apply that? I think there's this huge gap between what the evidence is saying and then what the clinicians can actually do. And so I think this translation is really missing. We, we need to teach clinicians how to read the research and apply it. 
And to make sure the researchers are doing the research that would actually be applicable. Yeah, and even now, like, PCORI is adding the patients in, too, right? What do the patients care about? So what do the clinicians care about? What do the patients care about? Are we even doing what the patients care about? I think that's really important. So this comes into play with the stuff that I get to do in research, even though I'm not a researcher, and in clinic, even though I'm not a clinician, and an educator, even though I don't educate, which is, are you identifying the right audience, right? So we always start with the who. We begin and end with people. And are you identifying the right audience? And then, once you have your audience identified, are you actually trying to solve a problem that your audience has? And then, are you trying to solve that problem in a way that is applicable to them at all? So you work with the APTA Neuroacademy. What are some of the projects that you're working on that you've gone through this knowledge translation process to make sure that all these things are a yes answer? So um, the clinical practice guidelines that we put out from the Academy of Neurophysical Therapy, um, they have been, the reason that the ideas came about was the physical therapist. We surveyed the physical therapist and asked, what do you care about? Ask the audience. We did. We asked the audience. And so um, then we had to identify, is there enough evidence to support a clinical practice guideline? And so that kind of um, brought researchers together to then synthesize the data. And from that point, the academy had developed knowledge translation groups from the clinical practice guidelines. So, for example, the core set of outcome measures clinical practice guideline came out and said you should be using these outcome measures. And we... Um, to make sure we're all using the right tools that we should be using. Yeah. We're not just the Wild West. Of, we're using I like the, this outcome measure. Yeah, we're Got using it. the right tools and we're having a standardization in practice, right? We're all using the same language and not just using willy-nilly outcome measures. So Didn't that's, For the over-under on the use of the word, the phrase willy-nilly, we're on the over on this one. Um, but... See, I saw Willie Nelson a few weeks ago, too, if you'd like to talk that about... That is not um, a shock from a vision. <laughs> but a clinical practice guideline is not telling people how to... I want to make sure I stop there, because when I was a student, I was like, clinical practice guideline, checklist, stuff I have to do, and you're telling me how to practice. But I wanted to make sure you could interject. It's not really doing that, right? It makes recommendations, right? So we got to then figure out what that recommendation means for your clinical practice. So that's why we have these knowledge translation groups. We we take the evidence, we make the um, we make the recommendations more like digestible, and then we use um, different tools about how to apply that in your environment and how to teach your patient about it and how to teach your leadership about it. So all of our knowledge translation groups from the academy, that's their goal is to really take the CPG and make it so the clinicians can use it. So Suzanne said, hey, one thing you should do, be a member of APTA, and these are the types of people that you get to interact with, and these are the types of things that you get to do, and then you people at the uh, Academy of Neuro get to make this available to, well, everybody, right? We do. We make it. It's all freely available to everybody. Now, how, many, how many of the students in the audience right now n- n- have accessed ACPG? Please all say right, all pretty of good. you. And then how many have used some of those things that you've learned in that and taken that to clinic? Great. Great. How does that make you feel? You helped You helped do that. I do. I. You know what? I try to bring up the websites, too, all the time and yeah. trying to say, like, oh, this document that I just looked at last week that my colleague made and so or that I helped develop. And it's really fun to see all the work that we've been doing and pushing out. So making it known. Right? We want people to know about it. So you're distilling it because someone in clinic might not have the time to do a giant research or so, uh, go down a giant rabbit hole for what they should be doing. You're doing that and you're making it digestible. I've heard from from some people, it's not digestible enough, right? I mean, CPGs I've seen are several hundred pages, and that's, you know, a good Friday night for a lot of us, right? A CPG that's a couple hundred pages. (laughs) How can they get better? 
That's a great question. I think, you know, what we're trying to do, Academy, is making podcasts to have them be more CPG TikTok, so I'm just going to put it out there. (laughs) And, like, I jest, but also I don't jest because, like, I work with the Orthopedic Academy, and I've thrown that out, and I've been laughed at. And then I've said, I look at TikTok as forced brevity. The next generation of content creators, the next generation of everything, is going to get to the point way faster. We want it shorter. We want it, yeah, that's exactly how we want it. So Yeah. Um, what are, so you mentioned core, what was the other CPG that you had, uh, um, coming out? We did, well, so several Parkinson's, the high intensity gate training, which was the locomotor, which is probably the one that I wrote about. Um, um, the locomotor training after chronic for chronic stroke, uh, traumatic brain injury and spinal cord injury. Uh, we have concussion, vestibular hypofunction. So there's, there's now the translation groups for all of yeah. those. And so I, my role in the academy is to bring together the groups, make sure that they're working appropriately and putting out the documents and train them and how to do the KT process. And, and these are super smart people. Like we, just oh had, yeah. we just had Becky Bliss on and she was involved yep. in the concussion. She's in the concussion, yep. Um, she's somebody I cheated off of in PT school <laughs> legally. Uh, started a podcast while I had to do a giant 15, 20 page paper and I just called her. And she answered all my questions. For my, yeah, she was nice enough to answer all my questions for my paper. So I just essentially transcribed that. Um, <laughs> the students who all just raised their hands and used, have used the CPG, it's fantastic, right? But soon they're going to go out into the world and they're going to have a job and the time is going to get shorter that they had to do that. So that's a barrier to using the evidence. So the last thing I want to get to is how do you suggest they overcome that barrier? Obviously, using CPGs is a way to synthesize lots of research into a guide. What else, what other resources would you suggest while you have their attention now before they go start to do the thing that they're learning here to do? Yeah. So I think there's a few things. One is uh, choose your continued education course wisely, right? There's anybody can push out a Khan Ed course and it could be completely full of nothing. Yeah. So I think looking at the academy, looking at the APTA, they are synthesizing the best evidence. So we need to choose courses that are being pushed by them. Also, just sitting at a Con Ed course doesn't change your practice. So you need to have something that's active that you can then take home. So a lot of times you go to a, you go to CSM and you're like, that's nice to know, but I'm never going to do that. And so you just walk out of that course and you took nothing other than like, that was cool. So we need to figure out ways to make these Con Ed courses more apl- like applicable to practice. So understanding and working in a clinic that's helping mentor you to change practice and oh, making you want to be a better, it is a theme making you want to be a better clinician and working at a place that's trying to challenge the people that are using the two-pound ankle weights on their patients or challenge the people that are not cha- pushing enough intensity on their patient practice. So that that is like you should be looking at clinicians and practice like that and looking for mentors and role models that help drive you and not let you be stagnant. Yeah, the answer is usually people. Uh, what would you say about the students here at Sacred Heart University? I think I think we're a big family. I think we're okay. very lucky at Sacred Heart University. I think that we get to know we have a big class, right? 71 students, 70 students, and we get to know the students pretty well. I think that we're very blessed in that, that we have a big family um, and we get to know them well. So that's I think that's how I feel about they're like my family members, is that and that's why I'm here for so long. So oh, I heard a couple <laughs> awes. Yeah, oh, in the back there. I saw that. And uh, I have to say the facilities, I said this four years ago, five years ago when I came, it feels like we're, pres- we're doing this podcast at like the UN. Beautiful. I think we're at the United Nations here. It feels very, very, very. Maybe last time was we were in this big building. Nice we building. were. And the time oh, before we that, we were just at, uh, at a bar. At a bar. Which I yeah. liked. <laughs> Listen, we're going to go there soon, but I'm just saying. Um, 
what's the future of knowledge translation? Where's the where's the where's the place if if the last thing I'll ask is where's the direction or the things that you'll say my work now has been successful because five years from now this happened. I think the future is with the students because the clinicians, some of the clinicians are kind of set in their ways and they're not going to make their behavior change. And so if we can be, as, as educators, if we can um, teach the students that things are going to change and that you are going to have to change your practice over the next 10, 20 years, um, I think that role modeling that now for them and saying, oh, this is how I used to do stuff, but now I, the evidence says I shouldn't do it like that, and this is how I changed my practice. I think that they are going to buy into that, and they are going to carry that out in their future. So that's I'm hopeful that the students that are coming out now can can buy into that and can change their practice and not be stagnant. So that's my that's my goal. That's my future. Children on their future. Treat them well. And <laughs> treat let them, them well. That's how I feel. Lead the way. <laughs> My Show family, them all you the see. what? <laughs> that's just, that's feel like it. we're doing karaoke now. Exactly. All right, are you ready for your parting shot so we can put some things in the pint glasses? Yes, let's do it. All right, let's do the parting shot. This is the parting shot. All right, parting shot, your last chance for a mic drop moment. You're the parting, you're the parting, parting shot. So no, no pressure there. What would you want to leave with the audience as your uh, mic drop moment? My mic drop moment is we all want to make our patients better, so let's use the best evidence to do it. Ooh, very, very knowledge translation-y. <laughs> let's hear it for Wendy Romney. This is the PT Pinecast.